Well, we're um, studying the last section of Paul's letter to uh, the church in Ephesus, where he writes about spiritual battle and uh, talks about the necessity for Christians to wear what he calls the armour of God so that they can stand in this great conflict. It'd be great if you could turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Um, if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles, it's on page 1177. And um, we, we've had two weeks of introduction already where we were exploring two questions, I suppose. The first was, who is the enemy that Paul speaks of? And we were thinking really in that first session about the origin and the existence of evil. Uh, we were thinking about the devil and, and the fact that Paul speaks here of supernatural evil. Um, the, we, we noted that in verse uh, 12, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual, uh, supernatural personalities in the heavenly realms. And we noted that our struggle with evil is more complex than we generally think it is. We're not just dealing with the natural realm, but with the spiritual realm. We have souls. This world isn't all there is. Uh, we have an eternal destiny. There's a spiritual dimension to our lives. And whether we like it or not, we can't escape the fact that a battle is raging that is very fierce. Uh, last week, in our session, second session, we were dealing with a slightly different question, which was more to do with what is the nature of the conflict? Uh, what is God doing in his world? And what is the devil doing in God's world? What, what's the nature of this battle and we did a little overview of this uh, little letter that Paul writes to Christians at Ephesus. There's only six chapters. And uh, what we saw, uh, just doing that little overview, is that although God created this world good, it is a broken world, a fallen world, but God has promised that evil won't ultimately prevail, that he is recreating uh, a people for himself building a new community of human beings who love and serve God as their king and for the Ephesian believers and for you and for me this will involve a new status a new uh, set of relationships and a new set of values and behaviour um, and, and I suppose as a result of that overview those three areas identity, relationships and behaviour if the devil is seeking to destroy what God's doing in his world he'll always attack those three things. He'll always seek to destroy what God is building. And we saw last week, we closed by thinking about the fact that in this conflict the devil's main weapon against us is not so much force but misinformation. The devil is a liar. And he'll, he'll always seek to misrepresent put a slant on things. He's always sowing seeds of doubt. His aim is to get you to believe that God doesn't love you. And he'll attack you in all those three areas. The area of your identity, your relationships and your values. And he'll seek to destroy what God is building through his deceptive lies. So we saw that in an ultimate sense our struggles really bore down to this one reality that so often in our lives we fall for the lies. And the nature of the conflict then is one of fighting 
what is not true with God's truth. That, that's the nature of the conflict that we're involved in. And I hope we'll see over the next few weeks that that's exactly what the armour of God that Paul talks about here is meant to symbolise. Um, and we're, and we're more about that over the next few weeks. We're, we're going to start today by looking at what call, Paul calls the belt of truth. And uh, so, so here's the armour. Um, we can read from verse 14. You can follow it there with me. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. What we're going to do is take one piece of the armour each week. And uh, we're going to start today with the belt of truth. Now, before, before we get into that, I just want to pause and make one further introductory observation. And it's this. Uh, I want you to notice from this passage that defeat is not inevitable. And, and I just want to pause and reflect on that before we think about the belt of truth. The point of this whole section, really, is to encourage you. This section is full of tremendously good news that defeat is not inevitable. You can stand against the devil's schemes, as Paul calls them, not with human logic or common sense or willpower or determination. You can stand when you put on the armour that God gives you to wear. Paul says this in other places as well. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a very, uh, a very stark passage. Paul's speaking about the Israelites in the Old Testament. They came out of Egypt. It should have taken them about two weeks to get to the Promised Land. It took them 40 years. And Paul speaks about their failure to stand, really. It's very stark. And in the first few verses, he deals with all the privileges they had what they'd seen, what God had done for them and was doing with them. And then in verse 5 he says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now I don't know whether he has a battlefield in mind there, strewn with the casualties of a battle that's been lost, or whether he's just thinking of rubbish like empty crisp packets blowing about in the wind. But either way, they, they were unable to stand. And you could draw the conclusion that if they failed, given what they saw with their own eyes, what hope have we got? But that isn't where Paul goes. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let me, let me turn to it, I don't, I don't want to misquote it. Um, 1 Corinthians 10. Um, yeah, he says, these things happen to them as, as examples and uh, were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And then Paul says this. I've got, I've got these verses up here. Look, look at these verses. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 
What is he saying? Defeat is not inevitable. There is hope. God is faithful. He has provided for you ways to escape. He hasn't brought anything at all into your life which is beyond your ability to cope with using his help. Let me say this. One of the worst lies the devil has, and maybe you know this lie, is to get you to believe that your situation is unique. No one quite has it as bad as you've got it. Do you know that? No one could possibly understand the pressure that you're under. The difficulties you have to face. And you begin to fall into a kind of victim mentality. And you start to feel sorry for yourself. And you start to think, why has God given other people such an easy life? And he's given me such a hard life. And before you know it, you then start to think that a little bit of self-indulgence won't go amiss. After all, I mean, who in all the world could cope with this sort of pressure? I know I should be obedient to God, but it's just so hard. That kind of thinking right there is exactly the kind of battle that Paul has it in mind. They are lies. But Paul says here, God hasn't tempted you beyond what you can bear. And he's provided a way for you to stand up under those temptations. The passage that Jane read to us from 2 Peter chapter 1. And um, just, just from verse 3 there. The devil says there's no point, it's too hard. Your situation's too complicated. And the lie behind all that is, listen, is it true that God has let you down? That's what the devil comes, he insinuates, doesn't he? Is it true what I've heard? God's forgotten all about you, hasn't he? It's really his fault. If he really cared for you, he wouldn't have allowed things to get like they have, would he? But look at what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What's Peter saying? Defeat is not inevitable. God has given you everything that you need to stand. What's really interesting about that passage is he goes on in verse 5 to say, For this very reason, make every effort to dot, dot, dot. The reason that you can make every effort to live the Christian life is because God has given you what you need. He's given you himself. He's given you his word. He's given you his life. He's given you his grace. So don't give up and believe the lie that defeat is inevitable. This passage in Ephesians 6, Paul is writing to them, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You don't have to fall over in this battle. Well, we come then to um, think about the belt of truth. I've been working really hard this week, grappling with what this means. All those hours of sweat and toil has brought me to a brilliant insight. I want to give it to you this afternoon. It's taken me hours to work this out and fine-tune it. Are you ready? This is it. 
The belt of truth is the first thing that you put on. How good is that? It's taking me hours to work that out. The belt of truth is the first thing to put on. I'm not just uh, teasing you. Hopefully we'll see why that's uh, important. What's interesting straight away is that the belt is not really a piece of armour, is it? I suppose you could take it off and attack someone with it. You know, I'll just unbuckle my belt and give them a bit of a clip round the ear with my belt. But if you're a soldier, that might work if you had a dog or something, but you know, if you're a soldier on a battlefield, hand-to-hand combat, you're not going to take your belt off and start thrashing someone with it. What you need is a sword, don't you? No, the belt is something that you wear. But I think the point is that none of the other pieces of armour will work unless you get this piece right first. The order that Paul gives is important. And he says, first of all, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Everything else depends on that. So, in a way, it is very foundational to the rest of the armour. Now, in, in all seriousness, I've read a lot of books while preparing for this series. I, I brought a little pile to show you. Here's some. And uh, I've got some more in this hand as well. Here's some others. If you want to have a look afterwards. I've not read... Uh, every word of all of them but I, I, there's a resource online as well I want to know what Paul's getting at here so that we together can get to know what Paul's getting at here and all these different commentators from John Stott, William Gurnall, a Puritan Colin Smith there's all sorts of writers here Tim Keller, some of them you'll know the trouble is all of these commentators all emphasise different things. And they all say that this bell emphasises a different aspect. So we've got a job on, trying to work out what does this belt of truth really mean. So let, let me show you. Some of them say it's a functional thing. That's pretty obvious. Um, apparently, one, one writer says this, the soldier's belt, in Latin, it was called the Singulum Militare. It was not the most noticeable piece of the armour, but it was a soldier's badge of office, worn with the tunic at all times, and it formed the central piece of his armour, holding all the rest securely in place. The belt was broad and composed of sturdy leather, and from it hung an overlapping skirt of leather straps, almost like an apron, on which were decorative rivets. Also from the belt hung specialised hooks and holders, it sounds a nightmare this on which to secure the scabbard that contained the dagger the quiver which held lances and an apparatus on which to rest the large battle shield also on the belt were clips with which to hold the breastplate in its proper place and supplies of bread, oil and water were also on this belt (laughs) it's like a proper one man band that isn't it big belt and all the other armour attaches to it it holds all the other equipment together. Some officers apparently would wear a kind of sash thing as well that like clipped on at the front, went over the opposite shoulder and then clipped at the back like a brace. And you could put all your sort of medals and 
different equipment on that as well and that was kind of a badge of honour if you were more senior in the army so the belt was a functional thing Uh, some writers say that the belt was a protective thing Uh, some point out that this belt was important because you would wear it over the tunic I suppose your underwear undergarment but you would have like leather strips that would hang down to protect your abdomen and, and your legs. Now, it, it did amuse me this a little bit. This text, it, it's not so clear to us in English. In the NIV here that we read, it says, um, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. But the Greek word that's translated waist is, is not, that, that, the word waste is not quite the right word. If we were living in another age, that, that word really would be translated in Old English as the word loins. Okay? So, some of the older Bible versions say, uh, get, get thyself, get, get thyself about thy loins <laughs> with, the, with the belt of truth. Um, it's not a word we use so much now, but it means more than waste. And this puts a, it's a slightly different slant. Uh, ancient cultures would use the word loins to describe the, the part of the body between your ribs and the top of your thighs. We, we would uh, use ruder words than that. <laughs> we, we, the private parts, really, the private regions, uh, the pelvic region of the body. For, for a soldier, just to kind of be colloquial, a soldier doesn't want to get kicked in the loins. So he has to wear a belt with leather strips that hang down to protect him. So the Greek here is not just Paul saying, hey, just slap the belt around your waist. It's got more than that. This is the idea of it protecting your middle, your gut, the most delicate parts of your body. I suppose an older generation would liken this to wearing your breeches. Or we might think of the word girdle. It was a broad, protective thing that covered the lower abdomen and the pelvic regions of a soldier's body. That's a different slant, isn't it? So it's a functional thing. Some writers think it was a protective thing. Other writers, again, say it is a supportive thing. Uh, Some writers point out that one of the main hindrances to a good soldier fighting in a battle would be a bad back. It's as old as the hills, isn't it? <laughs> I can't go into it today, I've got a bad back. It's soldiers had that complaint as well. What would they do? They would wear a belt. And the idea was that it would support the lower back. I suppose a bit like a weightlifter's belt. It holds everything in and gives you a sense of support, stability. So if you were a soldier you had a bad back, it was especially important that you'd wear this. And uh, just one last thing, number four, it's a mobility thing. Some writers talk about the fact that when a soldier gets ready for battle, he would buckle on his belt and the loose tunic he wore underneath would be pulled up and tucked into his belt. Apparently Roman soldiers wear a kind of tunic that was just a big square piece of cloth with a hole in for your head and your arms. You pull it over, put your belt around but if you didn't kind of pull up the material and tuck it into your belt, as soon as you start to run, you'd be tripping over and you'd be flat on your face with your nose in your shield. 
comes back to that word loins again. You'll be familiar with the old phrase, girding up your loins. You hear that phrase? The idea was, in older cultures, that if you wanted to move, you, you would kind of gather up your garments and you took them into the front of your belt so that you could run to the shop a bit quicker to get a pint of milk or you, if you were a soldier you'd, you'd be running into battle a bit quicker you don't want to trip over your garments as you're running but there's a kind of metaphor going on here because when you speak of someone's loins in an older culture you were speaking really of the inner person um, the, the gut the real seat of thought and emotion sometimes we talk don't we of what we really are deep down to an ancient person they would talk about the loins or they would talk about the, you know in my bowels the, the, this is the way people would talk and sometimes, we, we can relate to that a little bit, I think. Sometimes it's true physically. We speak, don't we, about having a pit in our stomach if we're worried about something. Sometimes we get so anxious that it affects our digestive system and it causes us problems in our loins. So they, these older ones perhaps had very descriptive words, don't they, to describe. So if someone said, gird up your loins, they wouldn't just be talking about you pulling your tunic up they would be saying, come on now, get a grip, gird up your loins, get a hold of yourself, get ready to face what's really there. Don't disintegrate and fall apart, gird up your loins. There's an interesting verse in 1 Peter, where Peter says, literally, gird up the loins of your mind. The NIV translates that, prepare your minds for action. It's an interesting uh, thought, isn't it? So these are some of the ideas that writers have grappled with. So there you go. You don't have to read all those books now. Because you've got... That, that's a little survey of what some of them say about the belt of truth. In the end, do we, do we really need to choose between them? Actually, they're all right, aren't they? And it is not unfeasible that Paul had all of those things in mind when he talked about fastening the belt of truth around your midriff or loins or waist I think the main point here is what I said at the start that this comes first there are different slants on it but the basic theme here is one of being ready for action when a soldier heard the call, he would buckle on his belt and it would serve all these functions. Can you see him there in your mind's eye, ready for action? Is he asleep? No. Is he awake and alert and ready and prepared to go? Yes. This is really, very simply, about being ready, being awake. What was the parable Jesus told? about those uh, servants who and he, he said to them be, be ready be, don't, don't fall asleep thinking the master's coming next year or whenever be ready, alert and awake prepared to be involved in this battle so the imagery is kind of I, I think it's really energetic imagery 
Buckle up. Be ready for action. Don't be asleep or lay in your hammock. Buckle up. Now, secondly, what is the truth that Paul is talking about? Here's another question. What truth is Paul talking about here? That's a good question, an important one, isn't it? Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist. Pilate asked that question, didn't he? What is truth? What what particular truth is Paul speaking about? We need to know that. We're going to buckle the belt of truth on, don't we? I think there's two broad answers to that question that commentators give. And then I'll give you a slightly different slant. So here we we go. Some people say it's objective. It's God's truth. It's the Bible. You should buckle on the belt of truth. It's the scripture. God's word. That's what truth is. And of course that's very true. But some writers who were very clever and intelligent notice that later on in verse 17... Paul says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So they argue, understandably I suppose, that if Paul talks about God's objective Word later as part of the armour and calls that the sword of the Spirit, he can't very well be talking about objective truth here. I'm not sure if that argument holds water, he could be just talking about the same thing in two different ways, but you can understand why commentators say, we're going to dismiss that idea so these writers conclude that the truth that Paul's talking about here must be a more subjective thing and I suppose, in other words they mean, what Paul's saying is you must be truthful, he's not talking about God's truth, objective truth he's talking about integrity I don't know if you know, there's a very famous psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 51. It's the psalm of confession and repentance after David sinned. Great king in the Old Testament, he he sinned terribly, didn't he? And this psalm was his uh, psalm of penitence, if you like. And in Psalm 51, verse 6, David says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Integrity. He realises that he's been what we might call duplicitous, double-minded. And as he's confessing his sin to God, he says, Lord, you, you want me to be truthful, not just outwardly, but inwardly. I've got a study Bible in my office upstairs, and in the notes on this verse, it simply says, character, not brute force, wins the battle. Integrity, again. Truthfulness, honesty. Now, if we take what we've already said about being ready and alert and poised, then if these writers are right, what they're saying is that to be alert and awake and ready is to have integrity and honesty in your heart. So the application for us would be, you can't live the Christian life by pretending. You have to be real. You have to have genuine integrity. You can't use kidology. You can't say one thing when you're really something else. There's no place for double-mindedness. 
you need to be the real deal. And some writers conclude that when Paul says, buckle on the belt of truth, that's what he means. Everything else depends on that. I didn't know this, uh, but I, I found out this week. In Roman times, there were people who, uh, who manufactured pottery. That, that, that's not the bit I found out this week. I, obviously, I knew they would make pottery. But this pottery was very thin, some of it, like fine china or porcelain. But because it was so thin, when they were firing it in the kiln, sometimes in the manufacturing process, the, the things they were making would crack. Very fine cracks in them. And some manufacturers would throw these defective parts away, but others would use a process to repair them. And what they would do is they would melt a very fine wax and they would seep it into the cracks and then polish it back. And unless you had an eagle eye and held up the pot to the light, you really couldn't tell that it had been repaired. And I suppose it was a way of not having to throw them away. And these traders, slightly dishonestly, would sell them as though they were the real deal, when in fact they were cracked. So the honest traders, used to, they began to put little labels on theirs that had two words in Latin on them. And they, these are the two words. I don't know how you say that, but sine cera. And that means without wax. So you can imagine going into a little shop and it would say a little label on there, this product has been fired in the kiln and it's not cracked. It's sine cera, without wax. It's the real deal. What's interesting about that is that you probably see you're ahead of me. We get our word in English, sincere, from that very idea. The word sincere is sine cera. It really means without wax. You're the real deal. Sincere. It's integrity. Now, this idea has some merit because in the end, when someone begins to pretend, what they're really doing is playing the devil's game. Deceit. He's a liar. He's a master of pretense. He loves confusion, darkness. He hates the light. John Stott writes that the devil hates transparent truth. What a great phrase that is. The devil hates transparent truth. He doesn't want to be able to see through anything. He's always trying to cloud things, make things murky. But there is a problem, I think, with this application. I think everything that we've said there is true. But I'm not sure that that's what Paul means. So you can learn something from that, but you didn't get it from this text. What does it really mean? There's a problem with this application because if that application's right, is, it, is Paul really saying that everything else depends on our integrity? That would mean that what Paul's saying is you're in a massive fight with these amazing supernatural evil personalities and the way you stand is by having integrity. Well, first of all, if the battle depends on that, then we're all pretty much doomed because we're all prone at different times to pretense, are we? 
Secondly, Paul describes this as the armour of God. But that wouldn't be the armour of God. That would be my own integrity, wouldn't it? Buckle on your own integrity and then you'll be able to stand. I don't think so. Thirdly, I would say, this verse then would offer no protection at all to someone who realises that they have been trying to fill the cracks with wax. What what do you do then if God convicts you of being a pretender? Is there no hope for you then? You haven't got your belt on, you've fallen over. Fourthly, although this idea of integrity is crucial, if this is the application, Paul isn't saying anything different here than, than anything that any other religion would say or code of ethics. Is Paul really saying, when it comes down to it, the most important thing is for you to be sincere? Is that what he's saying? A Muslim would say that. Or a Hindu. Surely Paul is going a bit deeper than that. It's not just about my or your integrity, as crucial as that is. So what is Paul driving at? Is it objective truth or is it subjective truth? Well, again, do we have to choose between those two options? Here's a summary for you. Putting on the belt of truth, then, I want to suggest to you, is really taking God's objective truth And applying it to your own heart subjectively. You're all furiously taking notes. That's a long sentence, isn't it? So I'll give you a minute. (laughs) Putting on the belt of truth is taking what God says is true and applying it to your own heart and life and situation. That is slightly different to what we've been talking about. You will stand in the sense of being ready and alert and in the sense of being protected and defended and in the sense of everything else depending on this when you take hold of God's word and apply it to your own heart and life. Now this fits with everything that we've been saying in our introduction weeks. The devil is a liar. And he will paint such a picture of God and a picture of your life as to make you distrust him. It's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Did God really say it? He didn't really mean that. But he's trying to pull the wool over your eyes and he knows that when you eat of it, you'll be all the time sowing lies, seeds of doubt. The only way to fight that is by having truth right in your loins. You need the truth to protect you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous uh, preacher, previous generation, this, this was his summary. The belt is truth, looked on, understood, appropriated, and in such a manner that it governs the whole of my outlook in every respect. In other words, I'm seeing life, I'm seeing my own life through the eyes of God's truth. It isn't just, I know all the order of the books of the Bible and I can quote some parables of Jesus. It's not head knowledge. It's knowing God's truth and applying it into my own life. 
This theme comes out over and over again in the Bible. Jesus said in John's Gospel, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. John chapter 8, 31 and 32. It isn't enough to know the truth in your head only. You have to apply it to your own heart and say, that's true for me. You're a liar. I'm going to believe what God says, not what you say. That is the way that Paul is urging us to stand here. That strikes me as consistent with this being the armour of God and not just my own integrity, as crucial, as important as that is. I want to close with four applications then. Are you still with me? Four, four applications, so let's rattle through these. Number one, if, if that's true, the first thing is that you must believe that God's word is authoritative, divine and true. You, you can't stand in this battle if you think the Bible is not God's word. So that, that's number one, isn't it? And here's the deal. Sometimes people go off to two different extremes. Sometimes it can be, I believe the Bible is God's word, but I need this as well. So that would be the Bible plus something else. That, that often is a sign of a cult. The founder of our cult had a massive vision. And only he has been given the keys to unlock what the Bible says. So it always becomes the Bible plus what Mr. Cult Founder says. It's not the Bible as God's word on its own, but the Bible plus something else. But some people, they have the idea that it's the Bible less something else. What do I mean by that? Well, these are the kind of people who come to the Bible and they'll say, amazing book, the Bible. Absolutely marvellous book. Full of God's truth. Well, of course, we know it's mixed in with lots of other errors and mistakes and human reasoning. But when you read the Bible, God's truth is in there. But it's God's word, less human mistakes. You can see that point? And the obvious thing to say about that is, how on earth do you know which parts are God's word and which parts are mistakes if you take that view? You either think it's all God's word and authoritative, every word inspired as it claims itself, 2 Timothy 3.16, or you just kind of believe you can pick and choose. So it's either the Bible plus something else or the Bible less something else. What God has done is to reveal himself and he's clothed that revelation in real history, real events, real people's lives. I was reading a book the other day um, it's part of a course that I'm doing and, and the writer said in the same way that the son of God was wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger so God has given us the revelation of himself and he's wrapped it in, in the swaddling clothes of history and the Bible comes to us all, all those different things we were thinking about the book of Ezra recently all that history the, kind of, the whole story of redemption, all those great heroes in the Old Testament, what God is doing is not just giving us history, it is real history, but he's revealing his own character, promises, laws, grace in that story. And every single part of it is useful and necessary in this great battle. 
Romans chapter 15 verse 4. Paul says there. For everything that was written in the past. Was written to teach us. Why? So that through endurance. And the encouragement of the scriptures. We might have hope. If you don't believe the Bible. You'll never stand. You haven't got the belt even in your cupboard. Never mind buckle on. If, if the Bible isn't God's authoritative word, then that, that's the only truth that you have to stand against the devil's lies. Second thing is, you must think clearly. Christians, above all other people in the world, should be people who think. And it's not as common as it should be, is it? People who are not Christians often think that Christians are just simpletons. But what's worse is when Christians themselves think that their life as a Christian is just about feeling nice. There's nothing wrong with feelings, and I like feeling nice. But you won't grow or stand if you don't think. You, you, you have to be able to think the Bible's truth into your life. Remember what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. If you don't think, you won't stand. The devil will knock you over and you won't even know it's happened. Peter is concerned that these Christian believers that he's writing to will think straight. And Paul has that concern here. But it isn't just thinking for thinking's sake. And it isn't intellectual. It's really thinking about what has God said and how can I apply that to my own life? Just in my preparation, I came across this quote by one writer. And he says this, The Christian has the privilege of enjoying the wholesome mental atmosphere called Christian optimism and a carefree mind. And he goes on to say, Not a mind that is devoid of an appreciation of the seriousness of life and its responsibilities but a mind not crippled and frozen by worry, fear and their related mental attitudes. I, I recognise something in that description. I, I, I know what it is sometimes to have a mind that is crippled by worry, frozen by fear. You, you can't escape from that unless you're prepared to think about what God says and apply it to your own heart and life. It isn't just knowing about God's word, but applying it and believing it to be true for you. So let me ask you, are you in your life spotting the lies? And are you able to fight them with God's truth? Sometimes I think it would be good advice to for some people to write things down even keep a journal talk to one another talk to me talk to each other what, what would be great is for every single one of you to be able to come back here in a week's time whenever and say I used to think this but God showed me this in his word and now I'm rejoicing because God has shown me what is really true against what I thought was true wouldn't that be fantastic You've got to be able to think. You've got to believe God's word is authoritative and be able to think. Third thing I want to say is you must fight with God's truth. I love the fact here that Paul doesn't say 
Stand firm then with the belt of common sense buckled around your loins. He doesn't say that, does he? Stand firm then with superior human logic buckled around your waist. Common sense is good. It will get you so far. But it's not enough in this battle. When the devil lies come, you've got to be able to say, hang on a minute, that may be true. But this is what God says. Is that not exactly what Jesus did when tempted by the devil in the desert? The devil comes to Jesus and says, is it true what I've heard? Did you know so? Three times the devil starts his temptation with the word if. If you are the son of God. If, if, if. Always so in doubt, so in doubt. Cynical, cynical. If, if, if. Did God really say it? It's just like the Garden of Eden. What did Jesus say three times? He didn't have a discussion with him. He just opened every answer with, it is written. You're a liar. And you're trying to put a slant on things that is not true, not fair. Go away. This is what my Father in Heaven says. It is written. You can't fight the devil's lies with common sense. You have to fight with God's truth. We'll see this again as we go through all the other pieces of armour. Extinguishing the devil's fiery darts with the shield of faith, the breastplate of... All of this whole picture really is one big picture of you can only fight lies by clothing yourself in God's truth. And there's a difference between using human logic and bringing God's truth to bear. When you think about it, this is a spiritual battle. Some of you are old, but the devil's older than you. He's older than me. He's been telling lies for years. He knows all the gimmicks. And it is reckless to think that somehow we can outmaneuver him. The only thing that will defeat him is the superior truths that God has given to you in his word. But you have to know God's word, don't you, to fight with it. I wanted to be practical with you today. We'll think about this idea again in more detail as we go through. But let me give you something practical if you're interested in this. Since 1997, John Piper's church in America, the US, has run a program that they call Fighter Verses. And they've recently, this year, given it a big makeover and they've produced a new website which is called www.fighterverses.com. And the idea is that every week it will help you to memorise verses from the Bible so you can store them up. And you can remember that they call them fighter verses. How are you going to stand against the devil's lies? By remembering what God's truth says. If you're one of these tech wizards, you can download an app for the Android or iPhone. I'm not on any commission. But that's something I would recommend. If, if you want to fight with God's truth, you need to know God's word, don't you? And memorising verses, learning portions of scripture is a good way to do that. So let me leave you with that as a thought. We can talk about that more afterwards. Let me close with this. Number four, you must put the armour on before the battle and not during it. How stupid would it be to be in the middle of the battlefield with the battle raging and you're struggling to get your belt on and put your shield on? You can't do it. Paul says here in this very passage, put the armour on so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Tim Keller 
tells the story of two women in his first church in Virginia who had the same difficult experiences later on in their lives as they were older. They both suffered great loss. But as he, as he dealt with both of them, it was clear to him and to them that one of them, one of these dear ladies, seemed to radiate uh, a peace and a joy in the midst of all the tears and trouble that the other lady seemed to know nothing of. The second lady was agitated and disturbed and she confided to Tim Keller that she couldn't understand where the other woman got her strength from. And Keller says he did his best help both these dear women. But this is what he said. Deep down, I knew that this second woman was trying to put the armour on in the middle of the battle. And the other had a lifetime habit of putting the armour on before the day of evil had come. Did you get that? The first had cultivated a lifestyle of guarding her heart with God's truth. And when the day of evil came, she could stand. And the other hadn't. And it was a huge struggle. Listen, the battle is fought in the mind fighting the devil's lies with God's truth and you need to get into the habit of doing it now because the day may come when it's too late you can't put the armour on in the middle of the battle just this week I was reading a psalm um, that struck me very powerfully I don't know what it is to have anxieties and there's a lovely psalm, Psalm 112. I'm going off script a little bit here. But, um, I hope I've got the right one. Yeah, Psalm 112. And verse 1. The, the psalmist says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who finds great delight in his commands. And then he, he talks about blessing. But he gets down to verse 7 and he says, This man, he will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. And in the end, he will look, on tr- he will look in triumph on his foes. I, I think that those two verses sum up what it means to stand, don't they? What this man's been doing is cultivating a heart that has has guarded itself with God's truth, buttressed itself against the lies. And the psalmist says he'll have no fear of bad news. Nothing will surprise him. Nothing will disturb him. His heart is secure because he's been immersed in God's truth. Get into good habits. In the end, we'll see, I think, that all of this armour is really a picture that he's saying put on the benefits of the gospel embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you remember who you are in Christ and be who you are in Christ that would be a good motto over the whole of Ephesians actually be who you are Christ has given you a new identity new relationships, new values now go and live like that 
Be who you actually are in Christ. You're not a slave anymore to the devil's lies. Christ has made you free. So live in that freedom. Slavery is a strange thing, isn't it? I was reading an article on CNN about slavery in Mauritania. And I, I never knew this. Slavery was only abolished there in 1981. 1981. But this is a quote or two from the article. In Mauritania, the shackles of slavery are mental as well as physical. And there was this fellow who'd grown up as a slave owner. He, he had his first slave when he was seven. He said it was like picking a toy. But he got sent away to study. And this, I'm just going to read from the article here. In a book on the subject of human rights, he pulled from the library shelf almost at random. Abdel, Abdel found the idea that would alter his life forever. Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. I started to ask myself if lies were coming out of this book or if they were rather coming out of my very own culture. And once this seed had been planted in his mind, he couldn't stop it from growing. By 16, he returned to his family's nomadic settlement in the desert to tell his slaves that they were all free. But he was shocked by their response. They didn't want to be free, he recalled, or they didn't know what freedom was. Chains are for the slave who has just become a slave. But the multi-generation slave, the slave who's descended from many generations of slaves, he's a slave even in his own head. And unfortunately, it's this type of slavery that we have today. For a slave to be free, she must first break the shackles in her mind. I think when slavery was abolished in America, there were people who were told, you're free now. And they didn't know what to do with that because they only knew slavery. And I think this is true for Christians. That Christ sets you free. But we prefer to kind of live in slavery so I want to ask you what is it that is shaping your life what is it that shapes your attitudes to yourself to other people are you ready for action have you girded up your loins do you have your belt buckled on and are you supported protected defended and nourished by God's truth well, may it be so for all of us, uh, to his praise and glory. Amen.